everybody. It's episode nine of the Win at Work podcast, the podcast that gives you the tools to build a wildly successful career, the podcast that will help you go from hired to high potential. This is Kiana Williams. I'm the author of Win at Work, a career roadmap for building a wildly successful career, available online at Amazon and barnesandnoble.com, and I'm your host. The Win at Work podcast is produced every week for your education and enjoyment, so come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, and be sure to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at Win at Work. Now, let's get into the show. On this episode, we're talking with Todd Corley, Ohio Health's Chief Diversity Officer and author of the recently released The Great Global Checkout, Millennials, iGens, and the growing epidemic of global pessimism. Todd is an accomplished global executive with rich experience in change management, organizational behavior, corporate social responsibility, crisis management, and financial analysis. Since 2007, he has been a fixture on various top 100 executive lists, including Savoy and Uptown Magazine. He has also appeared on Ebony Magazine's 30 Leaders Under 30 list, and the network journal's 40 Leaders Under 40 listing. He is also a member of the Executive Leadership Council, a professional organization for the senior most ranking African-American corporate executives across Fortune 500 companies. Todd's vast accomplishments include architecting a landmark diversity initiative that resulted in a 626%, yes, 626% increase in racial and ethnic diversity, leading national movements to erase exclusion, ban bullying, and champion inclusion, and creating a 10 million strong international groundswell across the U.S., Europe, and Asia around model behavior and peer accountability. He's the author of Fitch Path, a cautionary tale about a moose, millennials, leadership, and transparency. Todd is a graduate of Lemoyne College, New York, where he currently serves as a member of the college's Board of Regents and holds an MBA from Georgetown University. Out with a bit of congratulations. As I mentioned in the intro, you just released your second book, The Great Global Checkout, Millennials, iGens, and the Growing Epidemic of Global Pessimism. So congratulations on that. Good morning, Q. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So tell our listeners about the book. Well, the book for me, is, it was a, uh, an opportunity to talk about where I think the next generation is looking. And when I think about the world in front of us and the opportunities that we have, what has happened over the last few months, there's been a shift in how this generation has really looked at their opportunities in terms of opportunities in corporate America, community service, politics, uh, and the range of issues go on and on. The challenge that they're having as I look at it and as I talk to them is that they're becoming a little bit more pessimistic about what the outcome might be. Mm-hmm. In my first book, I thought, and I still believe there's a level of optimism that this generation has, but when you think about all the facts, all the um, political uh, rhetoric, the divisive language, and you look at this outpouring of protests, some very public by younger people yeah. and older folks, this generation is becoming a little bit more pessimistic about what the reality of options might be, how the world might take care of itself. Um, we think about dialing back climate change, for example, those type of conversations. This has caused this great deal of pessimism, 
not just for kids in the U.S., but kids outside of the U.S. who are, you know, engaged with connected technology with people and on platforms and social media and seeing the things that are getting in the way of what that optimism could look like. Yeah. Uh, so for me, writing that book was a way of just giving us a, a, a warning signal because I think if we don't take heed to it, I think we're going to find ourselves with problems that can't be solved with the innovation that young people bring to the table because they'll be checked out. Yeah. Um, and that's honestly how I came up with the title. And I do think it's a global epidemic with, uh, you know, an opportunity for us to, to hopefully fix and get in front of. Okay, so that's really nicely stated, Todd. And so, you know, one of the things that I, you know, thought about as I was reading the book is kind of some of those call outs that you make, those calls to action. So what is your great hope in writing this book? What do you want people, organizations to do as a result of taking heed to this call that you're making? I'm hoping that people take the advice of, allowing uh, this generation to find its voice, uh, us as individuals who may be in positions to give them that opportunity to start to ask a lot more questions so that they can have those, what I call in the book, question-only sessions where we're just dialing back or dealing in and delving deeper into, well, what can we do differently? Or how can we fix that? Those are a series of questions that have answers. And even with the answers that you might get from that exchange, there may be other questions. And it's almost like when you think about a root cause analysis, if you start to peel it back, you get to really the heart of what's really to be fixed. So I think what I'm hopeful is this generation gets that opportunity to do that before they become disengaged and they become frustrated and uh, they become you know, unconcerned un- with how to solve these things because they'll say to themselves, at least I believe, that why why does it matter? Yeah. You know, why does my vote matter? Why does my, you know, uh, opinion matter? I mean, you know, I, I talk about this in not this book, but the last one, but this generation would rather you be honest with them about something that they you, you disagree with them on as opposed to being dishonest and agreeing with them mm-hmm. because the level of transparency and authenticity that comes with uh, one versus the other is very different. Because in one way you're telling me, and I I don't agree with that point of view for, you know, this solution, but you're honest about it. That's up front. That's what they want. They want that candor. I think now we're uh, finding them to, to look through that and say, but wait a minute, you're now telling me you like something, but you know, you really were dishonest about it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make anybody feel good. Yeah. So, you know, obviously the crux of this book really is about engagement. And so a lot of companies are, you know, hyper-focused on engagement. There's been a lot of work uh, from uh, organizations like Gallup around employee and associate engagement. So Tell our listeners a little bit about what is engagement, specifically how you're defining it, and why is the lack of engagement in these segments that you're discussing in your book so important? In a simple way, engagement for me, and it's defined this way, uh, you know, Webster has a dictionary definition, but for me, it is the ability to have somebody give their all to either an issue, a solution, to be connected 
to the discussion to be invested in what has to be done or what has to go on to make something get better. And when you have engagement, you have people who are being creative, who are being vulnerable, who are sharing their thoughts and their opinions in a way that as they do it, they'll feel like, you know, I'm a part of this. It's, it's almost as if you think about weaving fabric together. Mm-hmm. So the level of engagement, the higher that it is, the more natural and the more in sync with um, someone is with something. So it's, it's almost as if, and people use this word all the time, you know, I'm centered. Mm-hmm. And being centered and engaged, you know, it has some parallel because if you're really centered and you're locked and you're anchored and you're tethered to something, that level of engagement shows that, one. And two, your best can come out of that because you feel like, you know, this is something that is uh, a part of me. I can trust because levels of trust are also big deals for me. And for me, when I think about the level of trust, I think we've compromised that for some people over the years. Yeah. And then then this particular segment, their lack of engagement is so critical because... The, The lack of engagement for this segment is critical because they are the next option, best option for us. I and mean, when you think about, you know, 91 million strong um, in Gen Z, thinking about coming together with this, mo- this, this notion of, hey, I can be a part of this. I'm innovative. I can be, you know, a part of a, a solution and my opinion might matter. Mm-hmm. Now, it may not be the right one or the exact fix, yeah. But the sense of being able to be a part of that, the solution is a big deal. And if you think about this generation, they're the most diverse that we've ever seen, the most educated, the most globally connected. Why would you not want those opinions when you think about the heart of what diversity and inclusion means, of having different opinions, thoughts included in something that allows people to feel like I can be a part of an overall fix. So if you take them out of the equation to get better at things, then we find ourselves um, holding a bad debt because we're not going to be able to pay that on our own because we're going to take out of the mix a generation who has, you know, more skill, much more savvy, uh, probably largely, you know, bilingual if you think about you know, them as a segment mm-hmm. uh, because they've grown up so much in, in this world of, uh, you know, global fluency that, will lose out on their best ideas and we can't afford to do that. Yeah. Can't. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And I love the kind of the weaving of this idea of centering engagement and its natural connection to inclusion as well. So, you know, a couple ideas struck me when I read the book. So the first one is your use of the word pessimism to describe the generations. And, you know, and I hear you when you're saying, you know, there's still um, a level of hope, there's still a level of optimism. But the, the use of the word pessimism, I mean, that's a pretty strong <laughs> statement. So talk a little bit about why you chose sure. that word. I, I chose that word because I, I knew it, it was a word that people could relate to. Mm-hmm. And when I did the last book, and, and for me, you know, optimism is, is a part of that. The complete opposite of that is being pessimistic. So I said, well, you can call out and see what it is. Because if you really think about it, this isn't a... Uh, a possibility. This isn't, well, generation may be unsure about what the future looks like. This generation is. There's an outpouring of people. You can turn on the TV, put the subject line, 
in there and, and change it from day to day. But what you'll get out of it is, is you'll see people who are using their voice, their body, their feet, uh, walking against issues. So it tells you that it's growing from something. Well, that something must mean that they don't like what they see. Mm-hmm. So if they don't like what they see, then they're obviously not necessarily optimistic about what those things reveal. Mm-hmm. What they find is that those things are, are disheartening at best. And there may be even a worse description than that. Pessimistic, pessimism was the most polite word that I could probably use. <laughs> I like to be polite, but I also like to be really honest. And writing these books have been therapeutic for me because this generation taught me years ago about how to lean into this work around inclusion and diversity. And I've been doing DNI work for probably about 20 years, but it wasn't until the, the opportunity that I had um, a few years ago leading this work with so many of them as my base of employees and, and colleagues. And for me, that's why I, I spend a lot of time thinking about who they are. Uh, I dedicate myself to even national organizations and chairing boards that have a focus on young people. So for me, it's, it's uh, it keeps me grounded in where I think the world is headed. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing that, you know, comes to mind for me is, so with this pessimism also seems to come a sense of power. So the thing that came to my mind is everything that happened um, with uh, the leader of Uber when people found out that he was on um, uh, Trump's uh, economic advisory council, and then they immediately like started like letting go of their Uber accounts, right? And yeah. then all of a sudden he reversed course, he got off the council, and so that that group of people, you know, I met a lot of people use Uber, but you know, I think that we know that a large kind of swath of their base is that millennial iGen population, and so even with that pessimism, they, they still seem to feel a level of power associated with their purse, their ability to affect change. That's brilliant. You're absolutely right. And I, and I think that's, that's well said because they're, they're, they are not a generation that's going to let go of their edge, mm-hmm. right? And that delete app, the delete Uber hashtag trended. And there were, you know, literally, I don't know, visuals of all backgrounds, people who were deleting right, in real time. Right. And your point is well stated in that their power of making sure that they could change the tide and the narrative was felt. Mm-hmm. And that is the one thing that I think people underestimate about this generation, that you can do and say things and behave in ways that are inconsistent with their values and hope that you'll get away with it. The reality is you're probably not. Yeah. And if you do, it may only be because, well, you got a pass or you got lucky, not because they weren't necessarily paying attention, but they might have been focused on something else. And if you, you know, continually act that way, it will catch up to you. And that's my belief. And, and I honestly believe that the more opportunity we give the, to them to hand them the keys to fix things, the better off we'll be because they see the world from a much different angle than we did. And... I think we're past this now, but I'm not sure. There have been generations that I've interacted with who have said, well, they're going to grow up to be just like me. Mm-hmm. The answer is that's not, it's not true because the reality is this generation has a different worldview, has different life circumstances that have happened and shaped them. 
much like those who grew up in the Vietnam era versus this one, we all had those moments and they were they're locked in. It doesn't mean we can't adopt behaviors of another generational group or cohort, but it does mean that their uniqueness is locked in. Yeah. So to be to to give consideration or thought that, well, they'll change, we're gonna miss something if we think that. So I'm I'm hopeful that we're past that, but I, I sometimes feel like we think that it's still gonna revert back. And this is a direction of of a shift that has happened that there's no turning back. Right. And and I'm actually glad for that yeah. because I, I wouldn't want to go back to where we are. Now it doesn't mean that there are things that happen now that didn't happen 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, we're reminded by that, you know, um, you know, like events in Charlottesville recently yeah. and other things that have happened, uh, that some of those ills of our society are still available and they, they reveal themselves. Um, but I'm also optimistic about the vigil that I saw, you know, on Charlottesville campus with, you know, white, black, brown faces, um, tall wheelchairs, whatever it might have been, who were uh, standing up for, for equality and equal rights. So I, I am hopeful that we will move it forward, but we have to acknowledge that there is a part of us that has to be realistic about if we don't let them allow, allow them to do what they do, we're going to find ourselves stuck. Right, right. So the, the the second idea that really stood out to me was this idea of a disconnect between the values and attitudes of these groups. So, for instance, you talk about the fact that millennials are the most highly educated generation to date, yet they're skeptical of the efficacy of the education system. So how do you explain this contradiction between the, their values and attitudes? You, for, for me... When I think about, you know, their attainment and what they look for, um, many of them in most recent studies are even looking at, you know, careers in medicine um, and, and other things and trying to, to be highly educated, high skill set. But I think when I think about whether or not that means something for our educational system, when they see the disconnect with younger people or other people who have more than others, um, and there are some smart people who could be fixing those problems, I, probably, I think they wonder, like, well, what is that about? So how, how, does it, how do we create a society where people are, you know, a bit more well-off, perhaps, have a lot more skill set available to them, but the same problems that we've been dealing with for the last 20 years of wide gaps or uh, inequity and in, in whatever it might be, how come those are still around? I think that they wonder why. Um, I think they wonder about, are we challenging ourselves in the best way possible to get the right fixes? That's probably all that I meant. Okay. Um, and, you know, even when I think more about, you know, the next generation, they're even looking at this thing about education as well. Do I put it off a little bit? Cause I don't want a lot of debt. Mm, yeah. And, you know, if I'm going to spend this money on this, you know, skill, I'm not going to get hired to, to do something. Well, maybe not because the last employer that I heard that, you know, a sibling, you know, worked for, they left them because the work wasn't purpose-driven mm -hmm. and the boss wanted to do something that was unethical. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all those things that are wrapped into this level of want to be educated, but also I wonder about what value this really has here. And not because it's not valuable to learn, but because are we doing the right things with education? Yeah, yeah. I like that. I mean, obviously, so as you know, I have two children in college now. You know, my 
daughter will be graduating this year. My son just started his freshman year and, you know, definitely can see those conversations with him. Sometimes I just wonder if it's just because he wants to (laughs) strike out on his own already. But, you know, I do think that there are those times where I'm seeing that, you know, grappling with, you know, whether or not um, education matters as much as getting out there and kind of, you know, forging your path and, and trying to make something something work. So that, that really does resonate with me. Yeah, and if I can add, you know, there's a study out by the National Society of High School Scholars. Uh, it's a, an international organization. It was founded by a gentleman by the name of Klaus Nobel, who was the senior member of the family that founded the Nobel Prizes. Okay. 1.5 million young people, uh, 160 countries these, these, these young people come from. And as they talk about um, who that generation is, one of the things that they often say is that international exposure, internships, global experience are at the heart of what they want. Because for them, it gets them connected to things that are not necessarily, not, not always US-centric, one. Uh, to uh, allow them to be exposed to different cultures and lifestyles, beliefs, religious or otherwise, so that they can be more well-rounded. And I think because that generation is looking for those type of things, we're better off because at the end of the day, those rounded perspectives and views give us a lot more to look at and give consideration to. And hopefully will give us better answers for world problems that need to be solved. So I, 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 and I, I did an interview uh, for a magazine who looked at who has engineers, and they said, well, how do we talk to our engineers about those type of things? I said, well, if you're talking to engineering students, the hope for them and the thing that they probably want to hear more about is if they are able to create technology or systems or processes or techniques that make a better bridge or build a better bridge, or you know can can fix issues. Let's stick with the bridge. The bridge can now be something that connects communities who might have had trouble getting from point A to point B for job opportunities. Well, now they know how they can be a part of that fix from what their skill set is. So anybody, this generation, no matter what they do, they're looking for that purpose-driven connection to what they do in that world. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, you know, you've led diversity inclusion (laughs) efforts for several major companies and across a range of industries. So how do you identify or what do you see as the biggest challenge companies are grappling with when it comes to diversity and inclusion today? You know, it's it's funny. I I did an interview um, yesterday, actually, with two African-American CEOs, um, and we were talking about a recent Fortune article that talked about the fact that you know, less than 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs are African-American. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about, you know, how despite, you know, years and years, I mean, you talked about being in the in the profession for, you know, over 20 years, despite all of this great work around diversity and inclusion, in some ways, we, we've moved the needle very little or not at all. And so talk a little bit about kind of why, why companies are still challenged around this idea of diversity and inclusion. <laughs> this is going to be longer than this interview. <laughs> so maybe you'll bring me back if I'm nice. Yes. Uh, I think companies have 
created a false sense of hope around this work and that there was thought, you know, that we can fix it by having a program and having somebody leading a department and having a couple of groups that are dedicated to the work. And, you know, I say that might be an, an ARG or BRG, however a group defines it as an affinity group. And oh, by the way, we're also going to have a, a statement, you know, every now and again to talk about what we do. Well, that's only surface. The reality is you've got to get under the carpet with this mm -hmm. stuff. You've got to make sure that your recruiting strategy not only talks about where you go to recruit people who are different, but your performance appraisal process for the manager who's giving reviews to somebody has inclusive behavior woven into it so that that manager is evaluating people with a lens of more cultural competency than he or she did before. Because if they're not, then they're assessing my talent or my ability to contribute differently than maybe somebody that they grew up with because they look like them. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, you also have to think about what does your marketing imagery look like? What messages do you have that come out of your CEO's monthly memos? Oh, and then you got to think about over there, what, what type of consequences come about when people make decisions that uh, show a lack of uh, judgment around, um, you know, assessing talent in, in other parts of the business? Or do you have sponsorship versus mentorship programs? Sponsorship being that more inclusive way of allowing people to feel like they have somebody who can support their career and advocate for them than the traditional and transactional experience of you and I will have coffee once a month. Right. So if you don't do those things all in concert with each other, then you have things that are not going to support each other's efforts. So take an example of if I'm auditing the in-store experience for a brand, a company, and what I mean by that is if I'm greeting somebody in the first 15 seconds of when they cross that threshold, and then I'm laying, laying over that, um, am I auditing managers who give feedback to people and then sending people to recruit on a college campus or a career fair and coming back with deliverables about who they met and what their follow-up is? If I'm doing all those things together, my odds are higher that I'm having a, a more robust initiative as opposed to hoping that I'm nice to somebody who walks into a store or even becomes you know, a patient in a hospital setting because you know I'm just you know, checking the box. Mm -hmm. Do I respond to that call button in the same time that I do for someone else? And do I audit that? And does my chief diversity officer know what the patient experience is on those type of questions, but also the questions of how I interacted with somebody who might have been the valet parker? Mm -hmm. Because the person who's doing valet services is also a first point of entry and interaction. You have to examine every aspect of the contact, meaning the interaction with the person who is not your guest or your customer. And then you have to lay over that what you expect your managers or your people who are associates in your organization, are they behaving in a way that's right? And so in essence, companies aren't wanting to go that deep. They don't have the resources. So so I, I, I get the point that you're making, but why, if that's what they need to do, What's the challenge around doing it? Because people look at diversity as this is not that hard. Mm -hmm. It's real simple. And I'm nice to people. Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't say you weren't nice. What I said is that you weren't committed mm -hmm. to diving deep, 
uncovering things, examining your faults, owning it, and holding people accountable, and connecting it to the whole system, the whole organization, the whole structure. When you do it that way, then it's tightly wound and woven as a as a ball of rubber bands who are, you know, all together as opposed to one loose rubber band over here or over there. Those two examples of one rubber band in my left hand and one in my right hand just means I support diversity. Here it is. I'm flagging it, waving it around. The woven ball of rubber bands together shows that I have tied everything together. I'm not leaving anything off the table. And the person who's heading diversity can go to the protective services person, the security guard, or um, the customer service representative and challenge them on what he or she does, Mm -hmm. much like they can go to the person who's in charge of talent acquisition or recruiting. That's good. That's good. So both of your books focus on millennials and a group that I don't think we hear much about. It was a fairly new term for me. So this group called iGens. So tell us about both of these groups, who they are, and more importantly, what makes them so fascinating to you that you wrote two books about them? Well, first of all, I want to stay young, so I got to I got to keep know, I got to know them. Uh, secondly, uh, millennials, I gens, it's it's what people commonly refer to as Gen Y and Gen Z, okay. and Gen Z is here already, right? So uh, this is the younger generation of the two. This is a generation that in a few years will you know outnumber uh, everyone. Um, but the generation that has learned, and this is which is progressively interesting in this work around generational issues. So I'm an Xer, and I wanted the same things that Gen Y has asked for. I probably didn't ask for it in the, as a way that was more public and, not, and unapologetic. Gen Y did that. Gen Z is doing that on steroids. And as you started looking at images maybe a few years ago when you started seeing younger kids who were looking at iPads, uh, for information that was their normal, that's Gen Z. Mm-hmm. It has become natural for them to think about what the use of technology means. And probably sitting in front of somebody who did an interview with one, they pull out their iPhone and they ask questions. They're not being rude. That's where their questions are. They don't have a notepad. So it's that generation. And, and for me, it is that shift in values that each generation represents. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I was um, talking to some friends and telling them that, you know, I was getting ready to interview you and um, talk about millennials. And one of them rolled their eyes and said, you know, I feel like there's so much attention on millennials when there are clearly other generations in the workforce now, too. And so this, this perceived push to support, grow, develop, give exposure to millennials, I think in some ways is is being felt as in not opposition to, but at the expense potentially of others. So so I'm a Gen Xer, right? I'm ready for next. Um, but I hear my boss talking about, or I hear HR telling me, or I hear the marketing department saying, you know, our focus should be millennials. So what would you say to those other generations that are still hungry to grow, develop when they feel like they're hearing a lot about let's focus and distort time and attention to millennials? Well, I would first say, and you didn't ask this question, but I'll answer this one. I would first say to employers, don't forget about the other generational groups. Mm -hmm. Because many companies have maybe as many as three to five generational groups in the workplace at the same time. So you got to figure out how they all work together. I would say to those who are in generations who start to feel slighted, to not feel that way, 
to say to themselves, well, I want probably what they want. Maybe they were first to ask for it, so i got to figure out how to ask for mine too. And I would say to both groups independently, we've got to learn how to appreciate each other because we all rely on each other. What is, so, what is important, though, is that we have to understand each group. And I think for millennials in particular, they've been misunderstood for so long I think employers are now trying to figure out how to get it right. So I think that's why they're hypersensitive and say, oh, we've got to figure them out and get them right and understand how we engage them. Because for so long, we felt like that we knew them because we were watching TV shows and we thought that was the answer. Like, oh, let's put an avocado green chair in a room and some coffee maker. What? <laughs> that doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. I mean, it's cute, but it doesn't go to the heart of who they are and what they want. So I think that's probably why you hear a lot of them talk about, well, how do I fix that issue? Who are they? Let me put some resources around it at the risk of other employers and being, other employees being engaged. Yeah, that's good. So, you know, I read a quote from you when you fir- when your first book, Fitch Path, Fitch Path, was released. You said, we're on the verge of a crisis, an aging workforce, lack of skilled talent, and outsourced labor are just a few of the significant labor shifts impacting workplaces today. Within five years, 53% of the workforce will be women, 50% will be millennials, and 40% will be people of color. Despite increasing demands for inclusion and equality, many global organizations are resistant to change their work models. Leaders must recognize that resistance is futile, inclusion is a mandate, and transparency is the new normal. So you talked a little bit about this earlier, um, and you know that statement was, clearly made a few years ago, but do you feel like companies heeded the mandate? And what what do you see companies doing really well? I don't think all the companies have uh, recognized the, the, the sense of urgency, one. But I think the companies who are doing it well are companies who are saying, I'm going to put resources behind it. I'm going to allow millennials to, uh, you know, be a part of some more leadership, you know, programs and have conversations in ways that are uh, meaningful for the organization. We're going to learn from them. I think the issue of transparency continues to dog us. And uh, only because social media is is, is even more uh, honest with who we are really are, then we are now beginning to really figure out we got to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it, but it, it behooves us to get it right yeah. because we're we're only as good as le- learning our own lessons and being honest about what we need to do differently. Otherwise, we're destined to to make some of the same mistakes we've made in the past. Yeah. So w- one of the things I loved about the book is that um, y- you focus your advice on what companies can do better. Kind of these call to actions after every section on things that companies can do to put into practice. Um, the ideas of that particular section of the book. But if you were to give advice to members of um, those groups, so members of the millennial and iGen groups who aspire to the C-suite, who aspire to get to the next level, what advice would you give to them? I would tell them to learn from those who have been there before. I would tell, and and, and and I mean that, and I'm glad you asked the question because this is not a book that, that says or should say that we have to figure out how to resolve the issues that are better for millennials and iGens. 
they too have a responsibility in this. I think that they need to hear from me that they've got to figure out how to learn from those who have been there before them. How do they figure out what some of the uh, normal, quote unquote, or socialized behavior might be in an organization? And they may tweak it and adjust it, but you got to appreciate it for what it is because it means something to cultures and how they've been formed and how they've been developed. And to discard that history and those efforts of the past uh, are, uh, don't help them at all fix the things that they might want to fix going forward. So there's a partnership in that. There's a collaborative effort that needs to happen. I think I would also suggest and, 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 and encourage them to do is to continue to read, right? You know, um, you know, we say on the show, uh, leaders are readers. Leaders are readers. Yeah. I mean, they really are. And you're, you're spot on with that. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell's book, which is my go-to, um, you know, looks at, you know, excellence and, and, and those type of things. And you've got to read and absorb how things come together. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love that. So do you feel like um, people of color and women who also happen to be millennials or iGeners have unique challenges? I do, and, and I and I and I do because the issue of gender gender issues, uh, issues of ism, racism, uh, you know, discrimination, all those things are very very real still. Mm-hmm. Still, so the reality of uh, millennials and iGens of color is the generational shift in values, but also the layover of who they are as people. Because they're darker, they're women, mm-hmm. uh, maybe entering male-dominated industries and businesses that haven't figured out yet how to even deal with older women, let alone the new ones who are coming in with, you know, you know, a, a, an earring, a nose ring, um, a bit of a swag and an attitude, but three degrees from schools that people have never even been to before yeah. because they can't get in. Yeah. So they've got all that added onto them. And I think we have to be mindful of that for, for, for uh, young people of color who fall into this bucket because they have a different lens of how they look at the work around them and the reality yeah. because they can still be stopped um, or still be challenged because of the skin that they come in. Yeah. You know, I, I was reminded of this recently. I, I was at a luncheon and the topic of the luncheon was the whole issue of um, pay equity. And oh, um, there, there was a time for a Q&A and a woman of color, you know, took the microphone and she started to ask the panelists about um, the issues of pay equity, particularly for women of color. And you could tell the panelists didn't have an answer, you know, and so she she kept saying, so will your platform include the fact that women of color um, and the pay equity issue is even more stark than white women? And ultimately, the answer that she received was, well, we need to solve this larger issue and everyone will benefit as a result of that. And I think, you know, it it took me back to my um, Black Studies sociology course at The Ohio State University undergrad, you know, about the whole women's suffrage movement where, you know, even then there was a conversation about, you know, should white women or black men get the vote first? And, you know, and I remember, you know, that whole discussion was, you know, everybody was pulling on black women, you know, side with women, side with black men, you know, wait your turn, that type of thing. And I think in this day and age, 
people are of the mind, no, we're not going to wait our turn. <laughs> like everybody goes together or we don't go at all, right? That's exactly right. And, and you know, I learned something from uh, the f- first lady of the city, for the city of Columbus, uh, the mayor's wife, about a statistic on women of color who annualize at a different rate, meaning that their pay becomes equal at certain times of the year. Mm-hmm. So white women may become equal in pay, you know, let's say, and, I'm, and I don't know the exact months, but let's say February, March in a given year, if you look at dollar to dollar for, for men. But black women and then Hispanic women might not become equal in pay until three or four months after that or three or four months after that. Mm-hmm. Reality is, is the gap is wider when you start laying over issues of who people really are. Mm-hmm. So you're sp- it's spot on to say that. And, and that if we don't think about how to solve those issues immediately for everybody, yeah. then we're not going to help anybody right. because it's going to be one at a time. Right. You do one thing at a time, then something else slides back and dials back. Then you haven't fixed anything at all. Right. Because now you've got to figure out how to uh, clean up the mess that has been made somewhere else while you were trying to figure out this over there by putting your hole in the, in the dam and thinking that it wasn't going to explode over there. Exactly. You know, it, it reminds me. So when when the Women's March happened, I remember seeing um, this um, white man who was holding a sign and the sign said, so I hope to see all you nice white women at the next Black Lives Matter uh, March. And it's that whole idea of really being able to see everyone's issues as interconnected, right? right? right. In order to advance all the issues. Right. And, and I think that's the biggest lesson and the biggest value that, uh, again, every generation has equal weight in my mind. But these two in particular are important because they hopefully will come to this work mm-hmm. with a different sense of urgency about everybody has to figure this out for everybody now yeah. and not wait, you know, figure out that, that group over there in the corner, that one over there, but this one can wait till next Tuesday and that one I got to do right now. Actually, I'm going to move this one up because something happened in that part of the country till now they become a more priority. We all have to have that priority. Yeah. Have yeah, to. absolutely. So last question. Um, it's obviously a pretty poignant time to release your book. How, how do you feel the events and decisions we see happening politically, socially, economically underscore the point you're making in the global checkout? So for me, timing was everything. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a while, for a long time. And it didn't get into high gear to me for me until November of last year. And then as I look at this, the, the world that we live in and the language and, and what to me, this is me, has become really very divisive. If we don't look at how we're creating this high level of pessimism among this generation, we're gonna find ourselves stuck with them not being engaged and helping out because they're going to wonder and doubt whether or not it matters to do anything. Mm -hmm. That to me is scary, is all belief and all get up. Because if we don't figure out how to tap into their level of engagement and their ability to approach the work of inclusion, I think with a little bit more skill mm-hmm. than other generational groups, then we're gonna find ourselves hurting for solutions and real problems to be solved. Because they're gonna check out, they're gonna take themselves out of the equation and be like, I'm not doing that. My vote doesn't matter. You know, if I work with an employer, they're gonna disappoint me because the CEO is gonna do something really, you know, off the mark and off color or an elected official is going to do something that is scandalous to him or her, and why would I put my you know trust in them? 
I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah. That's not a good place we should be. And now is the time to get it right. And I think you, what you see when you turn on the television and you hear articles and you watch blog, read blogs, younger people are using their voice to talk more about it. Yeah. They're using hashtags. They're using ways to get us connected. Uh, they're showing up for things, you know, in, in some ways, this is really interesting. They're showing up in some, for some things, as, as I'm starting to read, by just now sending messages under the radar screen so people don't interfere with them because now the public might know about it because they might be following their feed. So I think there's also a, a level of creativity around them that will hopefully allow us to fix these problems. We just got to make sure that they don't, you know, get too turned off. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been awesome, Todd. Thank you. Let's take a break. It's Todd, so let's wrap up with a little fun. Are you up for a game of 20 questions? <laughs> yes, I'm up for a game. I have to say yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Number one, what's the best book you've read in the last 12 months? Uh, well, it was a reread, uh, Invisible Man, uh, Ralph Ellison. Mm, yes, love, love, love. Okay, what's your go-to book recommendation? Uh, the Outliers, Outliers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. I think that's uh, it, it keeps me focused. Yeah. Best business advice you'd give? Be honest. Best business advice you've been given? Be honest. <laughs> okay. Knowing everything you know now, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? I would tell my 20-year-old self to network beyond your comfort level and write every name down of everybody that you've ever met so that you can go back to them because you never know where they're going to be in their time. Yeah, that's good. What's your favorite way to get balanced? Jazz music. Yeah? Who in particular? No one. Okay. Just anything jazz. You know, it's funny. Whenever anybody says anything about jazz, it always takes me to my son, who was named after Miles Davis. My ex-husband's a big jazz aficionado. So, okay. Where, what did you want to be when you were a kid? A baseball player. What? Okay. <laughs> I was pretty good, too. Really? They may still call me. There's, a, there's a strike. I'm going to get called up. All right, now. <laughs> Pet peeve. People who uh, don't take ownership or apologize for things. Mm -hmm. Just own your mistake, move on, let's yeah. get, get it done. Your proudest moment. Oof. Um, can it be a tie? Absolutely. Getting married and having kids. Oh, yes. Family points right there. Yes. How do you start your day? Uh, I start my day... Now, with a glass of water and a silent moment, uh, I'm not a meditator yet, but I probably should be, but just to kind of start to drink a little bit, get myself ready, and clear my head. Yeah, very nice. Who is the, who is on the guest list for your ideal dinner party, living or deceased? Gandhi, Obama, and Richard Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have some now humor. I want to be there. <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram? Uh, Twitter, but I would I would put in LinkedIn. Okay. That's okay. big for me. I, I love it. I like the connections and the people who are on there and, and uh, li learning what people are doing. Excellent. What brings you the greatest joy? Being a dad and a husband probably give me the best, best joy. And... Uh, just sitting in my own space and just decompressing. Okay. What can you not miss on TV? Law and Order repeats. Really? I've yeah. seen them all. 
<laughs> and come watch them again. I can right? watch them again. Yeah. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> Who are your heroes? Oh, my heroes? My mom is probably my heroine. Okay. Your guilty pleasure? Gummy bears. Really? Yeah. That's my thing, too. Oh, girl. Uh, listen, I got a jar from somewhere around here, I'm sure. <laughs> the best compliment you've ever received? That I was polite. And probably a moment that, you know, would have been challenging for many. Mm. Uh, those those matter to me because it reminds me that my parents taught me mm. well enough that you just have to just be that way. Mm-hmm. Your biggest career-related success? Well, I think that the, I think my biggest success is still out there. Uh, but if I had to put it on anything, it would probably be the transformational work at Abercrombie mm-hmm. uh, and turning that place around. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, that was a heavy lift. Yeah. The one thing you're better at than anyone else? Being creative. Okay. And finally, how do you win at work? I win at work by uh, trying to network with people, trying to establish relationships, building conversations, something that I can go back to saying to someone, hey, how is that family member doing or how are, how are your children doing on X, Y, and Z? I like to remember what I heard from people so that when I go back to them, I have one nugget at least about who they are as a person and what was important to them for them to have shared with me because it keeps the relationship going yeah, and that's it nice. keeps it honest. Yeah, I like that. Well, thanks again for doing the show, Todd. Love the conversation. Okay, everybody, that's this week's episode of the Win at Work podcast. Did you learn something new today? Are you a millennial experiencing the global checkout? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a note at podcast at winatwork.net with global checkout in the subject line and tell us your story. We just might feature you on an upcoming episode. You can also leave us a comment on Facebook. And if you love the episode, please share the link with a friend or colleague. Leave us a rating and write a review. It's very much appreciated. And don't forget to listen to us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.